Good morning, King's Chapel, and welcome to worship. My name is Andrew, and on behalf of our staff and leadership team, we want to welcome you to King's Chapel's online worship service. We also want to give a huge shout out and a thank you to so many of you who were able to attend our church-wide family Zoom meeting this past Wednesday. Now, if you were not able to be a part of that and join us, don't worry. We actually linked the full recording of that meeting through our weekly email this past Friday, and so you could watch all of our various announcements from that meeting this past Wednesday via that link. I do want to highlight one thing that we announced in the course of that meeting here this morning, and that's to let you know that for the month of May, we are going to continue with online worship services only. We hope and pray that maybe sometime in June we might be able to return to some form of on-site worship services here on our, in, at King's Chapel. But for the month of May, we are shaping the expectation that we will only be here via the online format during this coming month. That being said, there's still many ways to get connected and plugged into the life of our church. And the best place to go to do that is the King's Chapel homepage, kcpchurch.org. I want to highlight two ways that you can get plugged in and involved in our church through that homepage and the links there and the scrolling banner there on our church website. First, if you're fairly new to our church and maybe have only gotten connected to us via these online worship service platforms, we still want to get connected to you in some way, shape, or form. And so we have a connect card there. If you want to you know, begin receiving our weekly email, or if you'd like to receive a phone call from one of our pastoral staff, we would love to get some time with you and get to know you and get connected to you. So you fill out that form and we'll follow up with you. Second, I also want to highlight this morning that we have been providing daily devotionals throughout the course of this time of quarantine and social isolation, and so we will continue to do that, but we want to give it a particular focus during the month of May. And so beginning tomorrow, we are going to be leading you in our daily devotions through the book of Philippians. And then along with that, as a means of equipping you as a church, Andy Wozniki is going to be providing training videos each Sunday night, Monday morning, on how to read God's Word. We want to use this time and maximize it to steward it well, to help you learn how to study God's Word proficiently. And so we're going to be providing those weekly training videos along with our daily devotional guides all the way through the book of Philippians during the course of this month. We hope if you haven't already joined us for those daily devotionals, you will start this week along with us. And if you know of somebody who could use the training in regards to how to read the scriptures, please invite them. The more the merrier. We are excited about this opportunity to get into this great book where Jesus gives us this unbelievable model of suffering and sacrifice and how we are called to join him for the good of his kingdom and the glory of his name. Well, that being said, I also I want to thank you for being a part of our worship service this morning, and I want to pray for us as we join in worship together. Will you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity that you have given us via technology to join together in this way, to continue our worship of you. Lord, we thank you that you are the God who is omnipresent with us. We thank you for this attribute of who you are. That you're a God that even though we are scattered, that you are with us in each of our homes and present so that we can enter into your presence with you to worship you, to learn from you, that your spirit is still continuing to move and work in our midst. 
And so, Lord, we invite you and we thank you for your presence. We pray that we would come now and delight in you in our worship and our praise. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're now going to be called to worship from Psalm 47 by a reading from all of our elders. Clap your hands, all you nations, and shout to God with cries of joy. For the Lord Most High is awesome, the great King over all the earth. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth. Sing to Him a song of praise. Let's sing. Next thing we're going to do is take you through a lament, specifically Lamentations 3. And the writer of Lamentations does more than just complain or feel sorrowful or feel angry. One of the th two things he does is he focuses on a specific character quality of God. The character quality of God that he focuses on here in chapter 3 and that we're going to sing about is God's faithfulness, his goodness. Listen to Lamentations 3 verses 21 through 25. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. 
the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. Let's sing Great is Our Faithfulness.
The second thing the writer of Lamentations does in that same exact chapter after focusing on God's character quality of his faithfulness is that he, he rests in the fact that God is sovereign, that God is in control, that his plans will not be thwarted, and that even though I might think they're good or bad, that he is sovereign over us. And so we're going to sing sovereign over us, but first let's listen to a few more verses from Lamentations 3. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. There it is again. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. Who has spoken and it come to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Let's sing Sovereign Over Us.
passage comes from Exodus 35, 20 to 21, and Exodus 35, 30 to Exodus 36, 7. Then all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses, and they came, everyone whose heart stirred him, and everyone whose spirit moved him, and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent meeting, and for all its service, and for the holy garments. Then Moses said to the people of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and he has filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood for every work and skilled craft. And he has inspired him to teach both him and Aholiab, the son of Ahizamech, of the tribe of Dan. He has filled them with skill to do every sort of work done by an engraver or by a designer or by an embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarns, in fine twine linen, or by a weaver, by any sort of workman or skilled designer. Bezalel and Aholiab and every craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary shall work in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. And Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab and every skilled craftsman in whom in whose mind the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him up to come do the work. And they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work on the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him free will offerings every morning, so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came, each from the task that he was doing, and said to Moses, the people bring much more than enough to do the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave command, and word was proclaimed throughout the camp, let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary, so the people were restrained from bringing, for the material they had brought was sufficient to do all the work and more. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning, King's Chapel, and thank you, Sarah Dugan, for reading our scripture passage this morning from Exodus 35 and 36. 
You know, as I was thinking about that passage this week and meditating on it, it reminded me of this scene from one of my favorite movies, Les Mis. Now, many of you are probably familiar with that movie. It's uh, based on the book by Victor Hugo about a young poor man named Jean Valjean who steals a loaf of bread when he's young. And then for the next 19 years, he spends time in a French prison camp where there's cruel imprisonment and bondage. And when he's released 19 years later, he has no money, no family, and no hope in the world. And so his first night out of jail, he's looking for a place to stay. It's freezing outside, but really nobody in the community is willing to let this ex-con into their home. But finally, he finds the home of this Christian bishop who invites him in, who feeds him, gives him a place to sleep. Well, Jean Valjean takes advantage of the bishop the first night that he's there. He steals pieces of uh, his silver cutlery. He beats him up in the middle of the night and he, he takes off. Well, in the middle of the night, again, he's captured by the police and they escort him back only for the bishop to do something incredible. He extends him grace. Not only does he forgive Jean Valjean, he allows him to keep the stolen silver and then he adds to it these additional items out of the kitchen that had value. If you remember in the movie, he says, how could you forget the candlesticks? They're worth a good 200 francs. Well, the police are baffled. They uncuff him, they release him. And so is Jean Valjean. He can't believe what's just happened. Just then the bishop steps forward. He kind of grabs him by the scruff, by the coat, and he leans in and he whispers to him, don't ever forget, you've been ransomed. And with this act, I've purchased your life. You've been set free, and now you belong to God. Well, if you've seen the movie, you know that he is suddenly transformed. He goes from this ex-con to the heroic town mayor. He's absolutely transformed. He's incredibly generous. He's humble and selfless. He's been given a new calling He's charged with a new life and his relationships are marked by love. His business is marked by this integrity and the community around him is blessed by his Midas touch. He is the embodiment of grace that he received from the bishop. Now, most of us, if we've, if we've seen the movie, we're familiar with that part. But the book, there is this scene immediately after that he receives the bishop's grace that to me gives us a good picture of something that God's people are facing when they're in the wilderness, the people of God in, of Israel. And so in the book, as Jean Valjean is leaving the bishop's house and contemplating this act of grace and sacrifice and his newfound redemption, there's this small boy that's coming up the path who's singing and dancing and he's kind of tossing a coin in the air and catching it over and over again. And just as he's crossing paths with Valjean, he fumbles the coin and it drops to the ground. And Valjean, in his instincts of self-protection and selfishness, stomps on the coin and keeps his foot pressed down. The boy tries to retrieve it, tries to shake him free, but Valjean growls at him. He's angry and he gives him this hostile look. So the boy is scared and he runs away. Jean Valjean scoops up the treasure and has this horrifying sense that, oh no, I'm still the thief that I always was. You see, there's something about the previous life and the years of hunger and the 19 years of hardship and slavery and prison that keeps his soul in bondage 
and it prevents him from entering into this new way of life. Out of the fear and unbelief and secure, insecurity and shame, he's instinctively holding on to this old way. He stomps his foot down, refusing it to enter into the new life and have that, the one that was purchased for him by grace. And so this morning, as we're closing in on the end of our Exodus series, I was reminded of how Andrew set this series up way back in the beginning uh, in January. He said that as we go through this series, it's going to be really important for us to remember who Moses is writing to. That Moses is writing to Israel on the verge of the promised land, and they're nervous again. And Moses is writing this book to remind them of God's faithfulness, of his promises, of their new identity and their calling as his people. Now, I think today that when most of us think about the promised land and how that relates to us, we just, we just think, well, that's heaven. But what we said since the beginning of the series is that while that's true, that in biblical theology, though, we're not just looking up and waiting to go to heaven up there. That when Jesus says, pray, my kingdom come and my will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that what we're to be doing is to be bringing the realities of God's invisible kingdom to life here and now through the proclamation of the gospel in our lives, through our words and through our deeds, wherever we live, work, and play. And so the question that Andrew asked all the way at the beginning of this series is what would convince you to let go of the riches of this earth and to seek the riches of heaven, to follow the call of God, and to be about entering the promised land as God's people today. You see, what keeps us continuing to live out of this previous way of life like Jean Valjean is that there's a fear and an insecurity and a shame, an old way of life that is marking us. And so up until this point, we've seen the people of Israel struggle in various ways throughout the rescue. When Moses first comes on the scene to talk to the elders of Israel and to say, hey, God's about to do something, it says that the elders of Israel have disbelief. They're discouraged and they're beaten up and they, they can't hold on to this promise. And then when they're in the wilderness, they begin to grumble and they're afraid very quickly. They desire to go back under Pharaoh's leadership. You know, and so often, I think sometimes in our own lives, our work and our output and our responsibilities and the things that we're meant to be up to in this world are colored and shaped more by an old way of life and, and more by our old insecurities and fears rather than the life-transforming community uh, type distinctive things God wants to be up to in our lives. So I want to take a few minutes to look at this passage. I want to make two observations about the passage this morning. One is that God's people are suddenly free to get to work on bringing God's kingdom into the world around us in creative and generous ways. And secondly, in this passage, we see that God's people are freed from their work. They're actually empowered to rest. Okay, first, what do we, what do we mean when we say freed to work? Well, starting in this passage, Exodus 35 and 36, extending all the way into the middle of Exodus 40, Israel is beginning to assemble this massive super tent called the tabernacle and everything that would go along with it. There's an ark that they have to build, which will house the Ten Commandments. And this was going to be a reminder to them that God spoke to them through his word. There's a table that they're going to create, which would hold the bread of the presence. 
And that bread was to remind the 12 tribes of Israel that God was the bread of life who would provide for all of their needs. There's a golden lampstand, which is to remind them of God's light and protection in the world. There's this altar where sacrifice for sin is going to happen and a basin for cleansing that they're to build. Essentially, this super tent is a physical presentation of the gospel. It's a tabernacle that preaches again and again the message of salvation wherever they go. And everywhere that Israel travels, they're to set this tent up wherever they go. But more than that, this tabernacle is to become for them the place where heaven and earth meet again. What we lost in the Garden of Eden, God's people, living freely under God's reign and rule, enjoying his presence and relationship with him, is brought back to life in the tabernacle. And so they're called to get busy with gospel work, even a thousand years before Christ comes on the scene. Now, what we're going to see in this passage is that's going to require great skill and precision and resources to pull off the blueprints that God has given them. In a sense, they're going to need craftsmen and artists, carpenters and architects. They're going to need folks who can make precision cuts of wood and metal. Folks who are skilled in embroidery and weaving and engraving. Now, my question is, where in the world would these people have learned any of this? I mean, they've only been out of slavery for just a couple of months. But the reality is that they learned all these skills while they were in slavery in Egypt under Pharaoh, where they were forced to work. And so the question is, what is it that makes this type of work that we see here so different? What made the work in Egypt so dehumanizing and the work here in the wilderness so liberating? And I think that what this narrative is teaching us is that when we live our lives, I'm sorry, that that when our lives begin to be shaped and transformed by the glory of God and by the grace of God, well, then we're no longer defined by our work. We're no longer driven by fear, but instead we're freed to use our God-given, spirit-empowered skills and passions and resources to bless the world around us and to build God's kingdom with this sort of all-in generosity and spirit of creativity. I want you to think for a minute about how these Israelite workers would have been viewed and how they would have viewed themselves when they were under Pharaoh's rule. They were just slaves. Their value was in how many bricks can you make for me today? How much did you build? How much weaving did you accomplish? And so in a sense, they are just a nameless, faceless, raw material in service to Pharaoh. They're no different than the hammer or chisel or spool in their hand. They were simply raw materials, just a piece of wood, soulless robots in service to Pharaoh. There's nothing more dehumanizing than that. But now Israel has encountered the redemption of God. They've been given, uh, they've been redeemed and loved. They've experienced grace and glory from God. Think about the grace that we saw at Mount Sinai through Moses the mediator after the golden calf incident. The covenant is renewed. God is still faithful. He will not abandon his treasured possession. I mean, that is incredible grace. Think about the glory that we saw in the last chapter where Moses' face begins to actually shine. He has to put a veil on because he has been in the presence of God's glory. And so now in chapters 35 and 36, 
Moses, in essence, is passing the baton onto the people. And it says that everyone whose heart stirred within him, everyone whose spirit moved, both men and women, verse 22, all who had a willing heart, they began to freely bring offerings and supplies and effort and skilled labor and work towards this vision. Isn't that beautiful? And that's because God's glory and grace is creative and freeing and beautiful and life-giving. And so when we work or we parent or serve for our own glory and define ourselves by our own output and what we get done and what we achieve or don't achieve, it ends up robbing us of life. It takes away joy and energy. It dehumanizes us. We begin to live lives that are tired and bitter and cynical. It leaves us fearful and ashamed and living lives of self-protection, working harder without joy. But now look at how the Bible shows us something totally different when God's glory and grace begin to define our work. It tells us about a worker, Bezalel. He has a name. You see, he's not just an artist. He has a family and a tribe. He's a son. So he's not just defined by his output and his job. He's more than his job and he's more than his skills. In fact, what's so beautiful is that we see he's actually in partnership with God himself. In verse 31, it says that he was filled with the Spirit of God. Now that's actually the first time that that phrase is used of anyone in the Bible. And so because of this partnership with God, he is filled with wisdom and knowledge and understanding. It says in verse 31, that's the word that the NIV and the NAS and most other translations use. And they're intentional words on the part of Moses because of these are the very words that God uses of himself at the creation of the world. And so you have this experience in slavery where all these people are just slaves and now you have this named artisan in contrast. And guess what? This is what's true of all of us today as God's people, made in the image of God with the same wisdom and understanding and knowledge that created the world. And that becomes then the energy that is to move us out into the world today as we parent and do our work and serve, as we create and teach and lead and heal and bless this beautiful community called Carrollton. Listen to Proverbs chapter 8. This is a beautiful passage. It says, I, wisdom, was there in the beginning, when he set the heavens in place, when he marked out the horizons, and when he established the clouds, when he gave the sea its boundary, when he marked out the foundations of the earth. I was the craftsman at his side. I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in his presence, delighting in mankind. What a beautiful passage. It's meant to remind us that we are not soulless. And the world that God has created is not soulless. It was woven by a God of wisdom, created by this ultimate artisan, God himself. And so there's this beauty and meaning in the world, and we're created in his image so that we can bring beauty and meaning to bear in the work and responsibilities that he gives us as well. In our neighborhoods that we're called into, into the classrooms and hospitals, on the boards that we serve on, in the Bible studies that we lead, into every area of life, there's this deep desire that we share to see the world around us flourish because of the image of God that we bear. We're crowned with glory and grace. And so all of our work is creative and meant to bring about beauty. You know, there's no more 
dignifying view of work than the Bible's. And the Bible's view of our work is to be about seeing the garden of God become the city of God. It's going from Genesis to Revelation that the pattern of the Bible is to take the raw materials of our experiences and our skills and our resources and to give our lives so that they find ultimate meaning in bringing heaven back into earth. You see, to be a Christian on mission then is not to just say, I personally and individually am gonna set out to become the best and most ethical, hardest working lawyer or teacher or writer or pastor or father or husband I can be because that's what would honor God. No, actually it's more than that. It says in verse three that when they all received the, they all brought the contribution for doing the work, for the construction of the tabernacle. And what that pointed to was this group project, a collective effort, meaning that the people were giving themselves in service to something greater than themselves. They weren't just feathering their own nest, so to speak. And only by doing it together, being committed to a community, were they able to take the resources that God had given them and to use their full potential and produce work that would display God's love and bring about human flourishing. And so what this passage tells us is that when our lives are no longer defined by our own personal achievement, when our significance is no longer wrapped up in our personal output or pursuit of self-glory in the eyes of everyone else, but rather by the glory and the grace of God, then there's more than enough. Every need is always met. This is what happens at Pentecost, right? The Holy Spirit comes down, empowers his people, and the same thing happens. They become radically generous, radically hospitable, collectively so, so that this new community, the tabernacle of God, is able to meet everyone's need. Nobody has any need. It's amazing. And that's the same thing that's happening in Exodus 36. Now, here's the place for us to do some heart reflection this week as we think about God's word. And my prayer is that you would, because if I'm honest, all too often, even as a pastor, it's easier to live out of my old life of bondage and slavery and to believe that my significance and value is tied up in how much of or how well I produce, which saps me of life and drains me of joy. You see, when we live this way, we tend to exaggerate or we cut corners. Sometimes we manipulate in relationships we're passive-aggressive or we lie. We might cheat or live deceitfully in the way that we communicate and work. Why do we do that? Well, it's because we're measuring our significance and our worth based on what we can get done and what we achieve and what we bring to the table. Instead of experiencing the freedom and creativity and abundance and risk-taking generosity, that comes from being defined by God's, as God's redeemed son or daughter. And so if we're tired or joyless or weary or cynical or living lives of self-protection, this is the first place to look. How am I being defined right now? Am I viewing myself in light of God's glory and grace? Or am I looking at the old way of life and trying to define myself by my output? You know, the way that changes for us is when the people are not only freed to work in new ways, they also become freed from work. They're empowered to rest. And so this passage is bookended by the theme of rest. Now, we didn't read the section at the beginning, but 
in chapter 35, it starts off with Moses re-emphasizing the fourth commandment, which is the Lord saying, you shall rest on the Sabbath day. It's a holy day, the seventh day, day of no work. And then at the end of the passage that Sarah read, we see that Moses is commanding the people again to stop working. He's restraining them from bringing anything else in. They had more than enough resources and more than enough workers. And so you see what we have in Moses is actually the exact opposite of Pharaoh. Here's this drivenness on the part of Pharaoh that when there was enough, what would he say? Okay, keep making more bricks, more bricks. I want more. But Moses actually says, no, stop working. And here's the point. Your point, the point is that your value to God is not in what you produce for God, but rather your value and your worth to God is in his work for you. It's what he's accomplished for you, namely in the one that, Jesus, that Moses is pointing to, Jesus and his finished work on our behalf. And so in order for that to shape us and form us from the inside out, we have to stop working. Because if we stay busy and distracted and always working and working and working, then we'll fail to remember who we are, our new calling, and the act of redemption that has purchased us and claimed us the same way that Jean Valjean did when he stomped on that coin. And so there's this sort of beautiful drawn-out pattern in Exodus that I think we can miss if we go a little bit too quickly. And here's the pattern. If you're to look at Exodus 36 through 39, these chapters are an almost verbatim repeat of Exodus 25 through 30. And that's because in Exodus 25 through 30, the people of God are receiving the word of God. And in verses 36 through 39, they are living it out or putting the word into action. But what comes in between is the struggle of the people to believe the word of God. It's the absence of Moses for a short season on the mountain. It's the fear of the people and the temptation to go back to a former way of life. And it's the golden calf. And it's at that intersection of hearing the word and moving forward in obedience where we get God himself reaffirming his covenant to them. It's God's glory and grace washing over the people, cleansing them and reminding them of who he is, who they are, and revealing his glory to them. And as soon as that happens, Moses says, the Lord commands you to remember the Sabbath and to rest. You see, what makes us distinct as the people of God is the regular rhythms we need to build into our lives of hearing the word, believing the word, and then moving out to do the word. And hearing and believing the word can only happen when we take time to rest, time to experience our new identity and to remember the glory and grace and cleansing of God and to be defined again by the finished work of Christ. I want you to listen to how Victor Hugo describes that experience in Jean Valjean's mind as he's thinking about it after he stole the coin from the boy. It says that Jean Valjean recoiled in anguish and horror, and he cried out, Why have I done this? I, I knew I didn't need to, and yet he should have been the new man. It was this strange phenomenon, possibly only in his current condition. But the fact is that in stealing the money from the child, he had done a thing of which he was no longer capable, end quote. Now, what did he mean? What did Hugo mean when he said he did something of which he was no longer capable? Well, what he meant is that 
that because of his, the act of redemption and his new life, that he could no longer be identified as thief and convict and slave. He had a new identity, a new name, a new calling, and a new freedom. But the only way to deal with that default mode of self-protection was to stay connected with the new reality, with what had already been done to empower the change. And that's what this tabernacle is all about. Eugene Peterson says it this way, the final six chapters in the book of Exodus narrate the preparation for the continuing worship that would then assimilate all that has happened to them, salvation and rescue and redemption into the fabric of common life. So all this work of God is meant to be folded in and to become a regular part of their rhythms of life, week after week, month after month, year after year, for another thousand years, at which point Jesus would bring in a whole new beginning. So my question this morning is, KCP, what would that look like for us this week? To build a gospel rhythm of hearing God's word, meditating and coming to believe in the glory and grace of God for you, remembering the areas of slavery, the lies that we used to believe about our value and worth, how much can we produce, what my boss and other people think about me, how much stuff I can collect. That's not your value is what God is saying to us here. He's saying, I love you because I love you. Come rest in me and be freed to do a new kind of work. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's take a minute to pray. Well, Father, we want to thank you for your word. We want to thank you for the invitation that you give us in Christ to work freely and to bring beauty and creativity to the world around us as we proclaim the gospel where we live, work, and play. So we pray, God, that you would uh, bring your kingdom to bear in Carrollton and help us even now in this time of quarantine to sit still and to rest in your word, to meditate on your promises, and to be transformed by the new realities of grace and glory that mark our lives. God, thank you for our time together this morning. May your word uh, penetrate into our hearts and may it accomplish every purpose for which you've sent it. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, it was great to be with you again this morning. Let's leave this morning with a benediction from Psalm 90. Psalm 90 is Moses's, uh, Moses's psalm. And in a sense, Moses is the one who lived the Exodus. And so here's the benediction for us this morning. May the Lord satisfy us this week with his steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. May his work be shown to you, his servants, and his glorious power to your children. Let the favor of the Lord, our God, be upon us and establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Amen. Go in peace and have a great Lord's Day.